This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Do we have a duty to be happy? Does the modern age require us to be happy? Does it, on the other hand, make it impossible to be happy? Those are the questions addressed by Peter Stearns in his new book, Satisfaction Not Guaranteed, Dilemmas of Progress in Modern Society. Peter Stearns became provost and professor of history at George Mason University in the year 2000. He was named university professor in 2011. Educated at Harvard University, he has previously taught at the University of Chicago, Rutgers, Carnegie Mellon, and Harvard University. He's widely published in modern social history, including the history of emotions and also in the larger field of world history. Professor Stearns, in your new book, Satisfaction Not Guaranteed, Dilemmas of Progress in Modern Society, you point to the very strange and perhaps even unexpected development that the modern age didn't deliver on a mandate for happiness. I think in many respects that's true. We do know that modern societies tend to be at least somewhat more happy than many societies that have not yet modernized. But the gap isn't as great as you'd imagine, and there are certainly some areas where um, Modern developments have brought really unexpected setbacks. Well, and you go into those in some detail, but I think the very question you're asking is one that many people uh, really probably haven't thought to think. In other words, uh, to realize that perhaps our modern concerns for happiness aren't the same kinds of expectations that people have had throughout human history. So how did you come to decide to invest yourself in this project? Two spurs, really. One was the, the gap in the happiness data between degrees of modernity and levels of happiness. Modern societies are a bit happier than many societies that aren't yet fully modernized, but the gap is just surprisingly slight. That was one spur, and the other is looking at particular phenomena in modernization, such as changes in patterns of work or changes in patterns and attitudes toward death. One immediately sees a gap between what was expected and what is actually developed. Intellectual historians and others will argue over the definition of the modern age, but as you point out, without question, something very significant happened to change the way people live and societies are organized in what we would call modernity. Just for the purposes of our conversation, how are you defining modern? Very simply, modern society is one that is no longer primarily agricultural. It is heavily industrial or post-industrial. It is substantially urban. It sees uh, patterns of uh, uh, private life, such as birth and death rates, change markedly from the patterns prevailing in agricultural societies. Well, in an incredibly insightful way, you point out that modernity should deliver on a lot of human happiness, just in terms of the fact that you have such things as extended uh, life. You have a radical reduction in the deaths of children. Uh, you have changes in work habits that were no longer so tied to physical labor. Why don't you detail for us a little of what modernity did achieve for human beings in those respects? There's no question. Uh, I, I think the most striking progress is the one that you've already cited, is the, uh, the dramatic reduction in levels of, of infant and child mortality, uh, but the reduction in physical burdens of work, the expansion of longevity, the improvement in levels of education, the improvement in material standards of living, all of these are categories in which there are genuine gains to be registered with modernity. 
And you would think that all those things would produce greater satisfaction, greater contentment, and indeed this uh, perhaps elusive thing we call happiness. Yes, and again, to an extent, I think they do, particularly in the uh, in the first phases of achieving modernity. But again, the the gains are not as substantial as one might expect. Well, let me just ask you a straightforward question: How in the world would you measure happiness anyway? Hard to do. Again, we're we're advantaged in contemporary society by various kinds of polls, opinion polls, satisfaction polls. If we had those from earlier periods, we would have a, a, um, a more certain quantitative measurement. So there's a bit of guesswork involved. But when you can when you can chart current comparisons between societies that are not yet fully modernized and those that are clearly modern, uh, you can get some at least reasonable estimate of probable changes over time. As a social historian, you're used to asking big questions, but you're also accustomed to asking questions that perhaps others just don't notice. And you also notice changes. And I thought early on in your book, you precisely pointed to something that I think is, is often not considered, and that is you say this, with modernity came uh, a responsibility to be happy, uh, to uh, to be cheerful. And you talk about uh, the insistence on good cheer that emerged with modernity itself. Now, talk about that change. Well, this is at least in the Western context. I don't know that it's inherently attached to modernity, but there's no question that in Western culture, that is West European and North American, the first signs of modern structures in society coincided with an intellectual shift that began to argue that happiness was not only possible but um, desirable, that uh, people should be cheerful. And this combination of um, an important but in some ways stressful process of modernization, this combination with the injunction to be happy, could really make things rather difficult. So to be happy became a greater challenge of all things, because you now have a responsibility to be happy, to contribute to the common wheel and not to detract from uh, the common happiness with your, uh, well, out-of-step unhappiness. I think that's, that's a good statement, yeah. Um, and in some cases, and again, various people have pointed this out, in some cases the insistence on being happy uh, makes it possibly harder to achieve because it automatically jacks up expectations. Now, speaking of those expectations, uh, one of the delights I had in reading your book was to think some uh, some thoughts and to reflect on some questions I hadn't really considered before. And one of them is that we not only are a civilization that feed our children happy meals, but right into the Declaration of Independence, right into uh, our own formal charter, and uh, and indeed even uh, reflected in the United States Constitution, is uh, a responsibility or at least a right to pursue happiness. That's unusual language in retrospect. I think that was uh, one of the first cases in which you see happiness built into a political expectation that way. And it was a very revealing one. And it does turn out, for reasons that uh, are really worth considering, that the United States really has been in a, in a world lead in the quest for happiness over the past two centuries. But you talk about a dark side to modernity. There are so many gains, and, and you rightly point out that, uh, that even people who might have a, a, an as-yet undiagnosed unhappiness in modernity, they don't want to return to high infant mortality. They, they don't want to return to a time before antibiotics and, for that matter, dishwashers. But there is a dark side to modernity, and I think you honestly address it. Several dark sides, potentially. Um, 
One being that modernity brings in some measurable disadvantages, even along with its gains. And the other, and here the push for happiness is directly involved, uh, human beings what they are, being what they are, um, as soon as you make one gain, your expectations go up. And so your potential disappointment with um, inadequate progress is, is uh, magnified. Well, you also have a, a new calibration or an, an entire new structure to think about such things. For instance, you document one of the dark sides of modernity being that people, even if they were depressed in the pre-modern age, didn't know they were. And, uh, and now not only do they have a diagnosis that they are depressed, but they also have, uh, well, uh, the commodification of depression with people ready to sell endless numbers of expensive drugs to cure your depression. And and the, the very term depression tends to take over from the more moderate term like sadness, so that the, so that the whole process is magnified and often medicalized. So if I'm looking at a Gilbert Stuart painting of George Washington with his stern and uh, almost uh, well formal kind of visage there, and then I compare it to uh, the official portrait of Barack Obama, one of them smiling, and it's not George Washington. That's right. No, I think the history of smiling is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, there are some, there are some very practical twists. We know that Washington had fairly ill-fitting teeth. He probably just uh, didn't want to smile because he didn't want to re- reveal that um, infirmity. Um, President Obama seems to have excellent teeth and is perfectly willing to display them. Well, and he symbolizes perhaps an age that feels a moral responsibility to be happy. One of the things you deal with very early in your book is the fact that that a part of the unhappiness is perhaps uh, that people feel out of sync with an official responsibility, with a a duty to be happy. How did we come up with this duty to be cheerful? Again, I think it's a strong social injunction, and I try to trace it. I think it does begin, as you suggest, in the 18th century. That's when the, con- the, 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 the injunction about right to happiness pops up. But I think it became much more intensified uh, from the later 19th century onward, so that uh, children were, were really quite explicitly taught that they had a, a, an obligation to be cheerful within the family. Um, and I think this, this mandate has, has extended, and um, it's an interesting one. It probably makes... Um, daily life superficially more pleasant some of the time, it can be a real constraint as well because it makes it harder to to admit when things are not going quite quite right. You know, in terms of the specifics in your book, you deal with several things that, that I think would shock many modern people. One of them is the fact that in the pre-modern age, if you did lie about your age, uh, you, you lied to make yourself older rather than younger. There's been a complete inversion in the modern age in terms of the value of being young and old. That's absolutely fascinating. And that obviously places that there's an irony here, because in modern society, the opportunities to, to live into old age increase, and yet our tolerance of old age in some ways goes down. So there's a modern tension right there. Another modern tension you document is the pressure of time, uh, e- even with the modern age uh, roughly parallel with when people began to wear watches and to carry, as one of my friends says, time on their bodies uh, and, and to regulate ourselves by time. That, that, that too has brought uh, in the modern age some new opportunities for unhappiness. Sure. I mean, the time constraint is huge, and, and we teach our kids time uh, obviously very carefully and um, – I, I, I myself am a time addict, so I, I, I can't 
claim personal exemption, but I think the compulsion to be timely is is, is at the very best a mixed bag. It can it can uh, promote uh, real problems ranging from impatience to uh, to outright stress. Before we turn to some of the specific undersides of modernity that you you deal with extensively in your book, I, I want to ask you about something that uh, that you note without going into uh, to a great be- deal of detail, and that is a shift from what you called the humble melancholy or melancholia that marked the Christian disposition to uh, this official cheerfulness of, of the modern age. There's quite a bit of historical work. It's not mine, but I obviously use it on the popularity of moderate melancholy in uh, both England and the American colonies in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. People would apologize for outbursts of laughter or for uh, undue mirth. And at some point toward the middle of the 18th century, that balance began to shift away from the notion that melancholy was even appropriate and toward at least the early stages of this notion that people should be uh, resolutely cheerful. Maybe we better define melancholy here. It, it, it's not the opposite of cheerfulness. It's an entirely different thing, isn't it? No, it's not the opposite of cheerfulness. It's, it's, it's just a, um, uh, a disposition to be uh, slightly downcast, uh, to uh, avoid expectations of um, unduly positive earthly experience. Um, it's not necessarily sad, but it's definitely not cheerful. Before we turn to uh, to some of these other issues, I, I want to go to perhaps uh, the one issue that most of us would recognize is uh, is an appropriate cause for sadness, and that is death. And uh, you deal, of course, with the death of children. We'll get to that in a moment. But just death in general, you point out there's been a huge transformation in bereavement patterns and, and in the ways we, we, we at least think we're supposed to think about death. One of the big revolutions with modernity was was the revolution in the practical experience of death, the age at which one died, what one died from, where one died. And with this uh, came a, a almost comparable revolution in attitudes that made death much less acceptable, much less a topic of normal discourse. And that creates a, an intriguing set of problems because while we've changed death, we obviously haven't eliminated it, but we have our reduced our chances of talking about it constructively. And so talking about death constructively would be admitting that uh, we are not only not cheerful, but that uh, that we are, are grieving. And, and so grief, even in a public, much less a private context, uh, is something now that is, is a great embarrassment to us, it seems. I think we're not doing quite as badly as we were, say, 50 to 60 years ago, but we're, we're uncomfortable with grief, and we tend to label anybody who grieves too extensively as needing some sort of uh, psychological intervention. So the, the, the problem of defining a, an acceptable and normal level of grief is, I think, a, a rather acute one in modern societies. And by the way, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that in the recent controversy over the uh, the upcoming diagnostic and statistical manual in terms of psychiatry and psychology, there is a very open debate that's reached even the front pages of the New York Times in recent months about whether grief is itself a mental illness or a normal human response. That from exactly. a from a Christian viewpoint, that that that's a very odd question even to ask. From an historical viewpoint as well, I mean, it's a very strange question, and frankly, I think a disturbing one, because uh, grief is clearly a normal human response. It's not going to be eliminated, and even to consider that it should be uh, designated a disease category is, is, is quite strange. 
in terms of the modern experience, uh, most of us would think, of course, of work. And uh, you document that you can't have modernity without what's known as the Industrial Revolution. But there have been many lesser revolutions, including uh, perhaps now the digital revolution that have changed how we work. But in terms of what we expect out of work and get out of work and happiness, you really, I think, uh, deal fascinatingly with, with that question. How has work become an issue for us in the modern age? This is a tough one, and I don't want to pretend that I I have a, some sort of magically accurate interpretation. But there are aspects of work that clearly do not improve with modernity, such as the pace at which people are expected to work, the imposition of the new time sense, the degree of specialization in much work so that it's difficult to associate one's efforts with a finished product. Uh, there are aspects of work that for many people uh, probably got worse with modernity rather than better, even though physical burdens lessened and material rewards improved. So judging work is a tough one. Uh, and I, I mainly want here to encourage a sense that the uh, uh, the work situation is one that requ- requires more thought, more careful evaluation than we usually apply to it. When it comes to work, you also make a very interesting observation, and that is that in the pre-modern age, uh, most young men went through an apprenticeship and then they were on their own. But in the new world of work, uh, we find ourselves working with supervisors for the entirety of, of our lifetimes. That does change the equation significantly. Yeah, in many in many instances, the the opportunities for at least some hope of, of independence and self-direction, most people never have a work period in which that really occurs. We tend to take our age for granted. Too few ask those basic questions about how the intellectual and social conditions of the age came about and how did people live before this era. When it comes to modernity, you have a very clear historical line. There was a pre-modern age, and now we're in a modern age. Modernity, as Peter Stern says, brought many benefits. We're all thankful for antibiotics and CAT scans, and for that matter, interstate highway systems and computers. But it has also come with tremendous costs and with dilemmas that could not have existed until the rise of the modern age. That's what makes a conversation like this so very helpful. In terms of of matters that you really deal with at length, in terms of the, uh, the, the aspects of modernity that perhaps are most complicated in terms of happiness... You deal with gender, sexuality, aging, and eating. Now, now, those are four things we really can't get away from, but let's just deal with them uh, serially. In, in terms of gender, how has this become so complicated? I, I think, I think uh, modernity inevitably imposes at least some serious changes in gender relations. Two examples will illustrate this. One, with modern society, the average woman sees her birth rate drop considerably, which means that for most women, um, there has to be an investment in goals, not instead of, but in addition to bearing and raising children. And then modernity also improves female levels of education even more dramatically than male levels. So you have a situation in which women are less bound by childbearing and see opportunities for education increase, inevitably that raises some questions about uh, traditional gender patterns and traditional patterns of male superiority. I don't mean that the uh, the results are 
clear cut towards some um, universally accepted new definition. But some of the old standards have to be rethought. In, in terms of uh, of gender, when it comes not only to the roles between men and women, but but just dealing with women in particular, it, it seems to me that the lives of women have become even more complicated than the lives of men, as you recount here, in terms of happiness, because uh, with uh, with the responsibilities of of motherhood and childhood, there there also now seems to be a responsibility to have some other life in order to have a meaningful life, and and as you mentioned, social pressure here plays a huge role. This is true. I mean, this is. You know, part of the the recurrent women's debate now about whether it's possible to have it all and what all would consist of, and uh, I think it is a set of tensions that um, uh, impinge on men to some extent, but not to the same degree. I think you're absolutely right. Men can can uh, see their parental responsibilities as serious, but uh, not primary in the way that most women are still encouraged to think. Professor Stearns, when it comes to sexuality, you trace, of course, uh, very modern concerns with sexuality, but you also point out that a, a lot of what uh, has changed in terms of sexuality has come, uh, well, even more recently than the advent of the modern age with developments such as contraception. Just, just walk us through those uh, those developments, if you will. No question. The, the um, first signs of modernity in the West, if you take this, as most of us do, to be the later 18th century did see indications that some popular sexual habits were likely to change, but this produced a uh, an immense and, and understandable reaction among many people that, among other things, went into what we call Victorianism, an effort to use culture uh, to restrict sexual activity, uh, to focus it uh, traditionally largely on reproductive efforts, and um, there, was, there was a built-in tension here between the... Um, opportunities which modernity offered for new types of sexual contacts and perhaps even a uh, a reliance on sexuality as a recreational release and these uh, enhanced moral strictures. And these tensions obviously still affect us, still promote widespread disagreement about what appropriate sexuality is, how we should limit births, etc. So the issues here are, are quite real, and they result from the clash between uh, modern opportunities and potentials and the kind of moral response that initially greeted them. Well, one of the things you point out is that sex and modernity, to, to use your own words here, has become more important or at least more openly important as an ingredient of happiness. Uh, obviously, among other things, you just have to look at the uh, the history of sex manuals and their increasing proliferation in the 20th century. Uh, they're bent on saying uh, sex is vital to happiness, and happiness should define your reactions to your own sexual activities. Now, uh, not to move necessarily sequentially, but uh, to another issue, when it comes to old age, there's been a radical redefinition. We talked about the fact that, uh, that in the pre-modern age, people often wanted to appear older than they were. Now it's the opposite. But old age itself has become a, a problem with happiness. It's tied to changes in work and, and, and family and everything else. Why is old age uh, and then uh, the fact that we're living longer and there are more of us uh, who are living longer, how is that going to represent a great challenge to, to the happiness equation? think there there are two angles here. One we touched on before, and that is the extent to which uh, old age expanded, 
but a um, an attitude that welcomed the opportunities attached to old age uh an attitude that attitude in some ways decreased so we no longer look to the elderly to use the obvious point we no longer look to the elderly automatically as special sources of wisdom so you have this first tension numbers of old people go up uh the cultural importance attached to old age in many ways goes down so that's tension number 1 tension number 2 is something we're grappling with literally right at the moment in terms of our current budget crisis the first response of modern societies to the increase of older people was quite understandably to urge new systems of retirement that would give them a separation from work that would reduce the burden of 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 dealing with older workers well that was a response that worked pretty well for many people for upwards of uh, half a century or even more. At this juncture, when the costs of retirement are being increasingly realized, we have to wonder whether part of that that equation doesn't have to be rethought. And that's very painful. So I don't think we've figured out the appropriate modern response to the uh, the situation of old age yet. It's, a, it's, a, it's an active, ongoing debate. One would think uh, throughout human history that the first and primary arena of human happiness uh, would be that of marriage and the family. But as you document, uh, given the uh, the impact of modernity on the family and on marriage also, that that's now at least a very different kind of equation. So, so how does the family now play into the question of personal happiness? First of all, um, in many ways, the family has has survived surprisingly well. So I don't want at all to be saying that that the family and modernity is in some sort of automatic crisis. But there clearly are some some new tensions. In the first place, the family becomes less essential economically. Work moves outside the home with modernity. Uh, you don't have to be married to be uh, economically successful. Um, that can relieve the family of some economic pressures, but it also reduces some elements of the family imperative. One obvious manifestation, divorce rates go up. When the family is no longer economically as necessary, uh, people begin to assess it um, more in terms of its contribution to other aspects of happiness, and this can lead to negative assessments. Uh, I also think the family, uh, as it is increasingly defined in terms of its role in contributing to personal happiness, um, plays right into this uh, larger nexus around happiness. We are so urged to think about our happiness in the family that it's easy to be disappointed. It's easy to feel that, that something's a little bit missing. So the family in modern times remains successful, but amid stresses and amid quite a bit of instability. It seems to me that the cult of personal autonomy and, and of self-fulfillment plays a big role in this. So Barbara Defoe Whitehead has talked about the fact that uh, the rise of romantic love has been well documented and, uh, and, and then of expressive marriage. We express who we are by the act of marriage and whom we marry and, and the, the state of being married. But she says that has now been extended even into what she calls expressive divorce, that in order to demonstrate my autonomy, in order to, to be as fulfilled as I think I have to be, uh, it's now not enough to divorce. You have to divorce expressively. In other words, saying I'm divorcing for this purpose so I can be the me I'm supposed to, to be. That would have been right. inconceivable in the pre-modern age. No question. No question. I mean, among other things, the economic imperatives uh, were categoric, categorically against that. So you're right. This is this is a this is a new area of of uncertainty in the modern family setting. 
I'm going to read to you one sentence from your book that I think uh, just just ought to stand out uh, in terms of the point that you make. You write, many American polls from the later 20th century onward suggest that the happiest kind of married couple is childless, a truly striking finding and an obvious change from the good old days when having children was a fundamental goal of marriage, end quote. I find that to be an absolutely shocking sentence. I'm I'm the parent of four kids, so and I obviously like parenting, but the fact is that um, uh, many people are happier when they're not attempting parenting, and I also add in that same section that the happiest parent is the parent of only one child. Well, that is uh, incredible when you point out that in the pre-modern age, a couple attempted to have, on average, between six and eight children and had to right. in order to to, uh, to basically uh, increase the odds of their reproductive success in a day of very high child mortality. Right, and and you know, in those in those uh, in those days, children were essential to the family labor force, and that is obviously not now the case. So, one of the quiet little revolutions in modernity is that children switch from being economic assets to economic liabilities, and that changes the equation substantially, and inevitably raises questions about what are you, what are we having children for? If they're costing us money, how do we weigh this against other things we might want to be spending our money on? Well, and one of the kind of insidious turnarounds you have in the, in this very chapter entitled uh, The Century of the Child, Childhood, Parenting, and Modernity, is that you have parents having children in order to be happy, having children, who then have children who have a responsibility to be happy. The parents then have the responsibility to make happy and to make cheerful. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the uh, the 20th century history of parents assuming wider levels of responsibility for seeing that their kids are happy, uh, that's, that's, a, that's another sort of interesting tension about contemporary parenting. We, we mostly accept it, but it's, it's, it's not a traditional challenge. It's a new one. How does this change the entire equation between duty and, and happiness, where uh, j- just to, to generalize, as is necessary in this conversation, uh, I would argue that in the pre-modern age, and uh, with extensions even into the present, there are some who see a duty to be happy, but in the midst of the obligations. In other words, the obligations come first, whether it's marriage and family and, and responsibility and work, uh, duty before God and, and, and to make a contribution to society. That, that that came first, and you find your happiness within it, to a very changed situation in which happiness itself becomes the end. It, in, in some extremes, that's true. Now, I think most people, again, I'm, I'm writing a book that's trying to point out some genuine problems and dilemmas, but I also hope I indicate that I think many people make some reasonable adjustments and modifications of some of the um, uh, cultural assumptions. So I, I think many people, in fact, realize that true happiness, or at least true satisfaction, uh, often lies in fulfilling one's obligations, that it's not, a, it's not an either-or situation. But I do agree that in some portrayals, uh, happiness becomes a, uh, a highly personalized uh, consumer-type acquisition that does not comport easily with the sense of obligation. I think one of the more reassuring things you do point out in your book, and you say this in the beginning and you come back to it in the end, is that your review, by means of social history, is that human beings are rather incredibly resilient, that they do change and adapt to, uh, to new social contexts, even the context of modernity, rather well. 
Sure, that's why this is a book about some areas in which I think we could we could modify some patterns and consider some adjustments. It's not a book about some outright catastrophe. My hope is that by encouraging people to think about some standard modern patterns and dilemmas, uh, we can recalibrate just a little bit. But it's not a it's not a a plea for a necessary revolution, as you say. Many people adjust pretty well. Some of them adjust very well. I simply think we could we could be doing a little better. Now let's talk about consumerism. In your chapter entitled Born to Shop, you talk about uh, the, uh, the attempt by many people to make themselves happy uh, by consumer activity, by buying things. And you point to the question that we're really not sure. It, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Which comes first, the desire to be happy or the desire to buy? Chronologically, they were pretty closely associated in places like Britain or colonial America. Um, and I try to point out that I think, you know, it's easy to condemn consumerism. And, and people have condemned modern levels of consumerism since it first showed up. Uh, there are some superficial aspects. There are contrasts between consumerism and other goals. But I try to point out that in its early stages, consumerism probably responded to some to some legitimate needs. What I'm concerned about is particularly over the past um, half half century or a bit more, consumerism has some, somehow taken on a life of its own, and it's no longer fulfilling needs. It's rather creating sort of a treadmill on which people, from which people find it difficult to escape. You know, a couple of other questions came to me in reading your book. One is that uh, the experience of modernity, uh, and with all its technological wonders, was supposed to give us more time, more more uh, expressive time, free time, and right. uh, and yet. Given the responsibilities we have to be happy, we're really not very satisfied. And I think, again, the word satisfaction has to play a pretty important role here. It's not necessarily the same thing as as being cheerful. But uh, we have this mandate to fill our time with things that are supposed to make us happy. Right. Right. Including, in the case of Americans, uh, the obligation to work more than would otherwise be necessary to f- to fulfill consumer goals and i think reconsideration of time allocation is is one of the one of the essential desiderata of a more balanced approach to modernity well what in the world do you do with something like good old boredom is how does boredom fit into this picture uh, it, it, it turns out that uh, it, it must be something like uh, like one of the deadly sins of a cheerful age well, it's certainly a challenge, and kids, as you know, kids learn very early in, in in their infancy, or at least early childhood, that telling parents that they're bored is a, a fairly explicit challenge for parents to uh, find something more entertaining to provide them. So, I think boredom is is uh, is an interesting modern condition. It's it's a modern word in itself. It wasn't used before the 18th century, and. Um, it becomes yet another way in which we constantly are, are prone to ask ourselves whether we're happy enough, whether we're being entertained adequately. And I, I, at, at points, this becomes a, an excessive level of pressure. But this kind of uh, reality that previous generations might have known as anime or, or, or some just uh, just an, an unstructured opportunity without the obligation of, of particular work or responsibilities or even the, the project of the self – that that is what produced so many of the great works of art. That that that's what has been necessary to human reflection. Are we just push, pushing that so far to the margins that it doesn't much exist anymore in a modern society? I, 
I think there has well, obviously, individuals vary. So I, I don't want to to come off as as, as unduly uh, uh, extreme here. But I think I think we do tend, uh, from the way we raise children onward, we do tend to eliminate the unstructured time. I mean, this is one of the facets of contemporary childhood that's frequently been called into question. We want kids busy at something presumably constructive, but we want them busy at all points, and we're distrustful uh, when they simply seem to be sitting around with no clear pattern of activity. In terms of the happiness gap that you uh, you document here, you, you call for what you would uh, describe as some rather humble, uh, progressive changes in the modern age. Do you think it's ever possible to actually close that gap, regardless of the uh, of the age in which we live? Well, in, in in yes, I think it's possible to to reduce the gap, and I think many people actually do by getting more sensible expectations of what happiness should consist of, and how often, in fact, one can expect to be actively happy, as opposed to more. Uh, moderate levels of satisfaction. I think you can reduce expectations. I think you can reconsider certain issues that uh, we don't often handle well, such as expectations of death, and come up with a, a somewhat more livable formula than we currently have. Dramatic revolution, no. Uh, modification of certain current tensions, yes. I have to tell you, I thought your book was brilliant. I really enjoyed looking backwards at some of your previous writings as well. And uh, I, I think you evidently have a habit of touching on some of the most important questions that should be asked. I want to ask you about something that really isn't covered in your book except by oblique reference, and that is to what degree do you think that the process of secularization, of, uh, of, of the diminishing influence of an explicitly Christian worldview in the West has contributed to any part of, of, of this development? Well, look, I, I don't tackle it, and I don't want to come on as to uh, as an expert in an area where I'm not but I think clearly whether the approach is Christian or simply religious uh, modern societies have tended to reduce um, the acceptability or the the encouragement of more spiritual levels of satisfaction I think that is clearly true um, I don't necessarily think that's an explicitly Christian problem I think it would apply to many other religions as well but I think it is an issue with modern times. Now, at the very end of your book, you point out that the uh, the trajectory for what you identify as anti-modern movements is uh, is is not going to be very happy. Uh, to, no pun intended here. Right. Right. Um and and you sort of touched on this before. There's no indication that most people including myself, would want to go back to pre-modern conditions. So the adjustment process is not one in which uh, attacks on modernity make much sense. Modernity, in many ways, has been a good thing. And uh, to fail to recognize that is is, is misleading. So I think the, the, uh, uh, the choice is not modernity versus anti-modernity. The question is, what kind of modernity can we define and can we moderate some initial uh, trajectories toward a more satisfactory overall combination? Professor Stearns, thank you so much for this conversation. And uh, I, want you to t- I want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you joined me today for Thinking in Public. Hi, it was a great pleasure, and thank you for your really good questions and comments.
Even when we do not take modernity for granted, we sometimes generalize about its effects, either exaggerating its negative or its positive aspects. Peter Stearns, in his book Satisfaction Not Guaranteed, has attempted to find a middle way to critique modernity in terms of its liabilities while also championing its achievements as well. He calls for human beings, who he demonstrates to be remarkably adaptable, to adapt a bit further in terms of the reconciliation between modernity and happiness. At the very end of that conversation, I ask him about the role that Christianity and religious faith has played in happiness. He pointed out that in a secular age, that age that was only made possible by the modern age, that has become a far more difficult equation. And we need to think further about what that will mean. One of the interesting things to note, just in terms of the history of ideas and the history of language, is how the word modern has been transformed. It was almost entirely considered to be an unalloyed positive word. Modern was a compliment paid to anything. You wanted modern ideas. You wanted to live in a modern family. You wanted your house to be filled with modern furniture. But the situation has now become far more complex. As Peter Stearns reflects, even in terms of architectural styles, Americans now want to live in houses that look old in terms of architectural design. We watch programs about those things that happened in generations far previous to us. The Parisians who are flocking to Paris bookstores are buying works that uh, present rather romanticized visions of peasant life in agrarian France. These are the dilemmas of modernity. They show up on the bestseller list. And they show up in the mirror. They show up in our conversations. They show up in our marriages and our families and also in our churches as well. This whole idea of personal fulfillment, of happiness and satisfaction, is something that is somewhat awkward as a moral conversation in our day. It's obviously, as is evidenced by this book, an awkward issue when it comes to the secular worldview. Just how happy should we be? We evidently must be happy because in an age that lacks a kind of Christian eschatology, Whatever happiness we're going to get, we're going to have to get out of this life. And that, of course, reframes the entire equation. What we expect out of life, out of marriage, out of family, out of work, out of youth, out of old age. It's all thrown into one big jumble of confusions as the modern age presents genuine achievements, but also some very real dilemmas. The secular worldview, in looking at the issue of satisfaction, has to measure it in terms of explicitly this-worldly concerns— And if we're honest, those of us who are Christians often find ourselves all too often measuring our own satisfaction in similar terms. The problem is the delivery on the promises. No age, secular, modern, pre-modern, or otherwise, can deliver on promises in this life. And that becomes something that is very clear in this book, Satisfaction Not Guaranteed. Having read the book, which I want to commend wholeheartedly, as a brilliant set of insights in terms of social history, written by someone with an incredible amount of competence to survey the landscape of these concerns, one of the limitations here is that it's not only the modern age, but it's virtually any age that cannot deliver on happiness. Pre-moderns had concerns which we now gladly do not have, such as daunting percentages of child mortality the reality of social stratification and a complete lack of social mobility, work that was often tied to excruciating, backbreaking labor. We're glad to be freed of those things, and we're all thankful for dishwashers and antibiotics. But on the other hand, the modern age can't deliver on its promises. And even as it has brought much liberation in terms of technology, and for that matter, political liberation and aspiration as well, it has also failed to deliver the kind of liberation that human beings most need. 
Reading a book like Satisfaction Not Guaranteed is a tour de force in terms of intellectual reading. It it not only presents all the arguments and the questions and the documentation and analysis that someone with the skill of Peter Stearns brings, but it also points to many catalytic insights that every reader will come on his or her own self, uh, just in terms of reading and understanding. This is where this question leads to other questions in my mind. This is where this aspect of modernity actually needs further consideration. We too often find ourselves simply in the flow of life, not thinking about these questions. But one of the most haunting questions for a Christian reading this book is how in the world we are to define cheerfulness, satisfaction, or happiness in any sense. The limitations of human happiness become very clear by the time you finish this book and you realize that if indeed society's made the kind of adjustments that Peter Stearns and others would call for, there still will be a great happiness gap, a satisfaction gap. I think Peter Stearns is onto something of tremendous importance. Indeed, even more importance than his publisher or those who read his book by the mainstream will probably recognize. Nothing on this earth can close that happiness gap. We were not meant to be happy in this age in the way that we long to be happy. We were not meant to be cheerful or satisfied in this age because we're yearning for something else. Christians understand that in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that he gives us not only for this life but for the life to come. The transformation of these questions from a merely temporal to an eternal sphere changes everything. And it's good to think about that with someone so interesting and provocative as Peter Stearns. Many thanks again to my guest, Dr. Peter Stearns, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to the release of my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than administrative skill, who develop more than vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need the conviction to lead. You can find the book at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.